great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that when she did give birth, he might devour her child. But she gave birth to a son, a male who was going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God to be fed there for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah has now come because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they did not love their lives in the face of death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them and woe to the earth and the sea for the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows he has a short time. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence to her place in the wilderness where she was fed for a time, times, and half a time. From his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river flowing after the woman to sweep her away in a torrent. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river that the dragon had spewed from his mouth. So the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. He stood on the sand of the sea. Father, this morning as we look at the story of a horrific act, a futile attempt by a weak, powerless king to destroy your son, May we recognize that this story has so much to teach us that we might learn from it in our own lives and in the greater picture of what you are doing in your world so that we might have hope and encouragement for the future. Of course, in Jesus' name we do ask it. Amen. If you haven't already done so, please turn your Bibles in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This morning in our Bible study time, we looked at the beginning of this chapter, the famous story of the wise men who came searching for the one who was born king. Not the one who had been appointed to be king, not the one who had taken the rule, but the one that was born to be the king of the Jews. And we heard about Herod's attempt to bring these men unwittingly into his service as he said, go and find the child and then come and let me know where he is so that I too may go and worship him. This morning we come to the second half of the chapter where these wise men have now been told in a dream to go a different way, not to go back through Jerusalem on their way home, and so they return 
and the events that follow in the wake of that decision on the part of those men from the east. This is a story that has many, many levels, many layers. And I think the best thing for us to do is to, as I like to say sometimes, turn our hats around because we're going to go through a lot of material in the next 30 minutes and just think about what this says at a surface level, at a deeper level, and then at its most bedrock level to our lives as we live out our lives today. I said to you a couple of weeks ago that Matthew is singing a song uh, in this book. And if we put a title to it, it would be All Authority Over All Nations Demanding All Allegiance. All Authority, All Nations, All Allegiance. And this morning we're going to see one of the ways in which Matthew underscores the authority of Jesus Christ to be our Savior, our King, our Ruler, our Master, even when he was still just a tiny baby. So we'll get to that in just a few moments. So what we're going to do first is we're going to look at the story itself, talk about it a little bit. We're going to look at this underlying way that Matthew is showing us Jesus' authority, and then ultimately we're going to say, so what? What does it matter to us here in 2015 on Christmas Sunday in Waterloo, Illinois? So let's begin with the passage itself. You've already heard it read uh, earlier, and let's begin talking about it. In verse 13 of chapter 2, the Bible tells us that after they, that's the wise men, were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I like the way the Holman translates that last phrase. He is about to search. The word literally in the Greek language is he is on the verge of doing it. He is ready. He is preparing. Now, I've got to tell you, right there from the very beginning, that tells me something very, very important. It tells me that God already knows <laughs> the plans of our enemies before they even begin them, and he is in the business of protecting us from those as we listen and obey him. Because before Herod, while he was still sleeping, the night before he began to hatch his plot, God had already come to Joseph and warned him and said, you need to get up and head to Egypt. Egypt was about 80 miles south of Bethlehem. And what's interesting is in verse 14, it says, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, that very night, and took them to Egypt, escaped to Egypt, and stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. Joseph, what a wonderful model of a father. You know, it's interesting that Matthew's gospel is really the only one that emphasizes the role that Joseph played. Joseph really is one of the leading uh, secondary characters in the story. Of course, Jesus Christ is the center character, but Joseph's role is very important. And again, just like before when an angel came to him and said, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife because the child that is conceived in her is through the Holy Spirit. Now he says, get up, go. And that very night, Joseph wakes Mary up, says, get the baby, we need to leave. And they head out under cover of darkness. So that by the time the sun came up the next morning, they were already probably, what, 15, 18, 20 miles by foot south of Bethlehem on their way to the Egyptian border where they would find safety. Why Egypt, you say? Well, because Egypt also was under Roman rule. See, Herod had been placed in rule over Judea by, uh, by the Caesar, by, by Rome. 
and Egypt was another area of control. And so the minute they got across the border into Egypt, they were no longer under Herod's authority. Herod could not cross that line. And so they headed south. There were over a million Jews living in Alexandria in the first century, according to Josephus. And so there was a large Jewish population living in Egypt at the time. And so Mary and Joseph would find a place where they could find friends and people who understood their plight. So off they go. Jesus is safe before Herod even rubs the sleep out of his eyes the next morning. But he doesn't know that, of course. So in verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, isn't it interesting? He's still thinking so secularly. He doesn't even think about the fact that God's in control of this situation. He says, Those Gentile wise men have pulled the wool over my eyes. He was furious, it says. He flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all of the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Herod, not knowing that Jesus had already escaped, plots. He says, if I can't find that one child and annihilate him, I'll just kill them all. Kill them all. And he goes in, sends his soldiers in, every male child two years old and under, slaughter. We'll come back to that topic in just a minute. But this speaks of the kind of man that Herod was, and it speaks of the kind of evil that was going on that caused the people to mourn. Herod was so evil, as a matter of fact, I read in one of the commentaries that when he was sick and dying, as he was on his deathbed, he ordered the murder of 5,000 Jewish men so that at his death, the people would be mourning and crying rather than laughing and cheering because of his death. That's the kind of man that Herod was. A man that could go into a small village like Bethlehem and murder every young boy child in order to keep his control over his throne. But the next verse, the next three words are probably some of my favorite words in this whole chapter. After Herod I don't know about you, but that just makes me want to jump up and down because here Herod, this most powerful, this, this great, this mighty, this ruthless man wants to see the death of this baby born the king of the Jews, this little tiny infant child. He is determined. He is literally hell-bent to slaughter and murder this child. But guess what happens at the end of the story? Herod's the one that's dead. <laughs> and my Jesus... He's still doing just fine sitting down there in Egypt, enjoying the Egyptian sunshine. Herod ends up being the one dead. And we're going to come back to that in a minute, but don't you forget that point because it's important. After Herod died, verse 19 says, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel because those who sought the child's life are dead. So he got up took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he will be called a Nazarene. The same angel that came and told him, get up, head south, came to him and said, get up, it's time to go home. 
And Joseph, once again, was just obedient as he could be. Now, it's interesting the way the verses line themselves out. Do you notice that Joseph gets there and finds out that Archelaus, who was just as bad as his dad, if not worse, he was horrible, ruthless, evil-spirited leader. It says he was afraid to go. So he used his common sense and said, okay, I'm not sure what I need to do, but I was told to go in. But see, so he used his own judgment, but then he also waited for God's affirmation. And so the angel said, no, don't do that. Don't take him there. Instead, go north, go to Galilee. And they go to Nazareth, a little backwater town, a little place that was known for stirring up a little bit of trouble, being half-breeds in the place. And that's where he begins his young life, our Savior, Jesus. Not in Bethlehem, the city of the king. That might would lend some credence to some things. That might give him too much recognition. No, instead he goes to this little town up off of the Sea of Galilee, grows up there, and becomes known as a Nazarene. What a wonderful story about God looking over his son, protecting him from what was thought at that time to be one of the most powerful men in the Middle East, this great King Herod. But God was in control all the time. That's the surface level of the story. But now underneath that, there's something else going on. Underneath that, Matthew is weaving for us a picture of who this Jesus really is. And I'm sure you noticed, and we're going to look at them very quickly, three times in this passage where Matthew says that it, something was fulfilled. And so it was fulfilled. And actually, this is the fifth time that we have a prophecy fulfilled just in the first two chapters of Matthew. And one of the pillars, I guess I could call it, of Matthew's argument for who Jesus is and the authority that Jesus has there are four pillars that undergird this argument that Matthew's going to be making in this book. And as we get to each one, I'm going to show them to you. I'm not going to give you all four of them now because you won't remember them anyway. Um, but I'm going to give you the one that we see today, and that is that Jesus is the one that fulfills prophecy. And before we get through with this whole book, we're going to do half of it now, and about a year and a half we're going to do the other half of it. We're going to see over three dozen times where the prophecies of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And Jesus is show, or Matthew is showing us these prophecies to show to us that Jesus really is the promised king that was to come. Now, I need to explain just a little bit. So just let's, let me put on my teacher hat for just a minute and talk to you about prophecy and fulfillment, okay? Basically, there's two ways that prophecies can be fulfilled. And it based, it's based on the type of prophecy that it is. One is what we call predictive prophecy. And you can imagine by the word predictive, it means it's a prediction. The first two prophecies in Matthew 1 and 2 are predictive prophecies. The one was in chapter 1 where it says that, it is written in Isaiah and the prophet, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and you will call his name Emmanuel because he will save his people from their sins. That was a prediction that was made in Isaiah chapter 9 that came true when a virgin named Mary was conceived, bore, uh, bore a child, who was God literally with us. The second one was the one we talked about in Bible study this morning. When Herod is trying to find out where the child was supposed to be born, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law came back and said, it's in Bethlehem, because in the book of Micah it says, and you, Bethlehem of Judah, are not the least, because from you will come him who is to reign and to rule. That's a prediction, and it came true, because that's where Jesus 
was born. So predictive prophecies are fulfilled in the sense of they come true. They, they occur. The things that have been predicted sometimes centuries ago had come true in the life of Jesus. But there's another kind of prophecy, another kind of fulfilling. And that's what we call analogical or typological prophecies. Now, don't get messed up with the names. Let me just explain to you what I mean by that. Sometimes something will be said in the Old Testament that actually will come true historically at one level around the time that the prediction is made. Sometimes it's even something in the, in the Old Testament that is looking back to a further time in the Old Testament. But then later on in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look back at that passage and go, yes, but in a very real way, Jesus completes what this passage said even more than what happened at the time in which it was said. In other words, it wasn't a prediction that wouldn't be fulfilled until sometime in the future. It was a prediction or a prophecy that to a certain extent came true at the time that it was made, but then later on there was a greater fulfillment, a filling, a completion of that prophecy. And that's what we see in the three prophecies that we have in the passage that we just read today. Let's just walk through them for a few minutes, okay? The first one is the one that happens right there in verse 15. Jesus has been taken by his uh, adopted father Joseph and his mother Mary to Egypt. And it says, he stayed there until Herod's death so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this prophecy comes from the book of Hosea. And it's talking about the coming back of the people of Israel from exile in Egypt back to the promised land. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And so it was a prophecy. Actually, it was more of a, of a, of a, of a reminder to the people living in the exile that God in the past had called his people out of bondage and brought them back to freedom in the time that they had been in Egypt as slaves. And Matthew looks back on that and says, okay, the people for 400 years had lived in Egypt. They had come to believe that this was just the life they were going to live. And then God sent Moses and called his son, metaphorically speaking, all of Israel now becomes God's son, calls his son out of Egypt and redeems them and brings them into the promised land. And Matthew goes, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. Jesus is taking us out of the spiritual bondage that we've been, out of the spiritual pain that we've suffered, and he's bringing us and redeeming us. And so just like the Israelites came out of Jesus, out of Egypt, into promise, into fulfillment, so Jesus also completed that prophecy because he, just like the Israelites, came out of Egypt. The second one is the one in verse 18. After the children are slaughtered, it says in Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they were no more. This comes from Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's very interesting that actually this is the only verse in Jeremiah 31 that's a verse of mourning. The chapter really is about hope. Let me tell you the story very quickly. In the days of the Babylonian exile, the men and boys would be gathered to the town of Ramah. And that's where they would be chained, shackled, to begin the long walk from there all the way back to Babylon. And so the women would stand and they would weep. And you say, well, what does Rachel have to do with it? Well, that's all part of the story. Because Rachel, who was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, if you remember, she was the wife of 
of Jacob. And she gave birth to, to Joseph and Benjamin. And she died in childbirth and was buried just outside of Ramah. So, so in a sense, Rachel kind of became the prototype of the weeping sadness of the women during the exile period. And so Jeremiah is saying, just like Rachel wept for her children, so these women are weeping because their children are also being carried away from her. But in the very next verse of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah says, don't weep. Be comforted because they're going to come back home. They're going to come back someday. You may not get to see them, but they will come home. Seventy years will be completed, and then they will return back from Babylon to their own home. And so as Matthew is reflecting on these women of Bethlehem weeping over their children who are slaughtered, he's thinking, you know, Jesus really completes that prophecy that Jeremiah made because Jeremiah said, I know you're sorry, I know you're grieving, I know you're losing your children, but listen, this is not the end of the story. There is going to come a return, and there's going to be a redemption. And so these women of Bethlehem who were crying and weeping over the loss of their children needed to know that God's plan was not finished. And they could take comfort in that. And finally, the third one has to do with verse 23. He went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets that he will be called a Nazarene. Now, I'm not going to go into a lot of depth about this, except to tell you this. Number one, there is no verse in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene. You go, oh, well, I guess Matthew made a mistake. No. You notice what he says? He says, through the prophets, plural. And usually when you have something like that, what it means is it's a general statement. Later on when we study the book of Acts in a few months, we're going to see Peter preaching and talking about how the prophets had said this. What that means is not so much that they said these exact words, but they had this kind of emphasis. All right, what do they mean that the Messiah would be a Nazarene? Well, what do we know about Nazarenes? Well, we remember a young man in the book of Luke who is told that Jesus was teaching and preaching his name is Nathaniel, and someone runs to him, named Philip, and says, come, listen to this one, this could be the Messiah. He's a man from Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Na Nazareth was a place that was of disrepute. Nazareth was a place that was off the map. Nazareth was a place that nobody wanted to be from unless they had moved out. And to be a Nazarene meant to be, I guess kind of our word today would be like a hick or a hillbilly. They were mountain people. They weren't very well-mannered. They weren't very well-taught. And you remember in Isaiah, he talked about the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, would be one who was despised, one who was of no repute, one that was of no great reputation, one that was not one of great power. And he was going to be there. And by the way, there's one other part to this story too, and that is that the word Nazareth, comes from the word nezer in Hebrew, which means a branch. Not like a branch of a river, but a branch from a tree. And if you remember in Isaiah, Isaiah had prophesied that out of the stump of Jesse, there would be a new branch that would spread forth, that would bring new life to the people of Israel. And so out of that little backwater town called Nazareth, called Branch, comes the branch. 
So you see, even these prophecies that are not direct predictions, Jesus fulfills. And Matthew is telling us by this, look, look at who this Jesus is. Look at how his father protected him. Look at how God sent angels to take care of him. Look at how the plan of God superseded the plans of his enemies. And look at all of the different prophecies that either were directly fulfilled or by analogy or by type were completed in who Jesus is and trust him. He is the one that has all well, that brings us to the big question, okay? We're on the downhill side now. That brings us to the big question, and that is, who is in charge here? Oh, Herod thinks he's in charge. Herod thinks he is absolutely unstoppable. He can do whatever he wants. He forgets who's really on the throne. He doesn't take into account the fact that this is God's work. This is God's son. This is God's Messiah. If he doesn't understand the whole idea of incarnation and God in flesh, he should have understood that this was the one born to take the throne of David. And nothing he could do was going to stop that. Because Herod was not in charge. From the very beginning, God was in charge of this whole process. God was the one that was superintending. God was the one that was allowing Herod to live out his own damnation, his own condemnation, so that the punishment of his death would be just and right. And then that leads us to ask, okay, good story, fulfilling prophecies, God's in charge, I already know that. What does this have to do with me? So what? What's up? Well, beloved, let me tell you something, in case you hadn't figured it out yet. This battle is not over yet. This battle is not yet finished. The passage I read at the beginning comes from Revelation chapter 12. And if you have a minute, why don't you turn back there? We're just going to look at a couple of verses as we finish up. You see, this battle has been raging ever since Genesis chapter 3. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when God said to Eve, the serpent will try to nip at the, your heel, the heel of the seed that you will bear. And all the way through, we see this happening again and again and again and again. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers, Pharaoh who, caught, who killed all of the boy babies in an attempt to try to keep the Israelites from growing. Once they got into the early kingdom era in Canaan, the Canaanites who constantly were either trying to lure them into their false religion or trying to destroy them by beating around their borders. The Philistines who fought again and again and again. Goliath who tried to kill young David. The Assyrians who carried off the ten northern tribes and basically assimilated them until they disappeared off the planet. And then the Babylonians who tried to take the tribe of Judah and do the same. And then the Greeks after them. And now Herod. And then once the church was born, the Romans, and to this day, this battle. You see, this is not just a battle between good people and bad people. This is a cosmic battle. This is a spiritual battle. And we are right in the middle of it. Did you notice in Revelation chapter 12 when I was reading it, they're talking about this battle, and, and, and I don't want to get into trying to overanalyze it. We don't really have time for that this morning, but we're not really sure whether the woman is Mary, whether the woman is the, is the Israelite nation because Jesus came out of Israel. We don't really know. But one thing we do know, we know who the baby is. Look, look what it says in verse 5 of chapter 12. In, Roman, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, it says, But she gave birth to a son 
a male who is going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter. And her child was caught up to God into his throne. So we know who the child is. The child is Jesus. And we know who the ones are that Satan is attacking once he could not devour the child. If you're not sure about that, let me give you two places. Look, first of all, at verse 10 of that same chapter 12 in Revelation. The end of verse 10, it says, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. The accuser of our brothers, he is called. And then in verse 11, it says, they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. And then if you jump down to verse 17 at the end of chapter 12, it says, so the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And who are her offspring? John tells us. Those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. That's you and me. You see, Satan is still at work doing everything he can to destroy the plan of God. I have news for you. He really doesn't care a whole lot about you and me. We are just like those foot soldiers on D-Day. And we honor every year those who gave their lives on D-Day. But you know what? Hitler didn't really care about those individuals. He wanted to defeat the Allies. And to a certain extent, even though it was heartbreaking for the Allied commanders, they knew that literally hundreds, not thousands of our soldiers would give their lives. But they knew the only way to beat the enemy was to send troops in and to keep sending them in wave after wave after wave after wave until finally they overran that hill, that cliff, and they were able to change the tide of World War II. So let me tell you, Satan is not interested in you and me. He's interested in the one that we serve. And he will do anything in his power. And one thing we have to understand about this, and I want you to listen very carefully because this really hits us where we are today. Not all of our enemies are our enemies. You say, well, okay, now you're playing with me with words. No, I'm not. Here's what I mean by that. I'm a sinner, okay? I don't think anybody in the room is surprised by that. I'm a sinner. And I have weaknesses in my life. And Satan knows that. And guess what? So do you. You know my weaknesses because you've seen them. And you have weaknesses too in your life. And so what happens is Satan will take me and he will utilize one of my weaknesses that he knows will hurt you. Let's say, for example, I'm very task-driven at times. And sometimes I have every intention to call you when I find out that you've been sick or you've had to go to the hospital or you've had a death in your family. But I get too task-driven and I forget to call you. And that's wrong. I admit that, and I ask you to forgive me for that, but, but that's part of my sinfulness. And so Satan knows that, and so he uses my sinfulness not to hurt me. He uses my sinfulness to hurt you. Now, does that mean that I'm an evil, malevolent person? No, it means I'm a sinner. And sometimes, to be honest with you, there are things that happen in your lives because of your sinfulness that Satan uses to hurt me and discourage me. And we have to remember the fact that we are in this together, and we have one common enemy. And his number one desire is to destroy the testimony of the church of God. And his secondary desire is to discourage us from being effective in our Christian lives. That is the battle. But we also remember that we have someone who is in control. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we can put our trust and we can defeat him by the word of our testimony and by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that cleansed us and bought us and redeemed us and the word of our testimony which is we have put our trust in Jesus Christ. So we know how to defeat our enemy. 
we bind ourselves together. We forgive one another. We encourage one another. We challenge one another. We recognize that our enemy is this dragon who is doing everything he can to attack us and dissuade us and discourage us. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. It could be a church member. It could be someone that your kids play ball with. It could be another family. It could be a family member of yours. I don't know. But I do know that we have one common enemy, and our job is to defeat him. So what does that mean for us this week on this particular Sunday? It's the most important thing I'm going to say to you, so listen very carefully. It means that we don't need to just enjoy Christmas. We need to confess that we need Christmas. We need this baby to remind us that God is in control. I know that some of you have been through heartache as deep and as lasting as those Bethlehem mothers. I understand that. And I would not make light of that one bit. I would not tell you that you should not grieve over a lost child, a lost parent, a lost relationship, a lost spouse, a lost job. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm asking you, in faith, underneath your grief, to recognize it just like the prophet Jeremiah was saying to those women in Israel. Just like Matthew was saying to these women in Bethlehem. And just like the Holy Spirit is saying to us today, God's plan is not done. God's plan is not done. He is continuing to work. We don't understand why he allows things to happen sometimes in our lives, in our world. We don't understand the why. And maybe we're not supposed to. Well, I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to. Because if we knew, we wouldn't have to trust him. He just says, you trust me. There is hope. And let me just say a special word about those of you who are grieving this year because of a lost loved one. I know you know this in your head. But please try this holiday season to pull into your heart the truth that your story with that loved one is not over. If that loved one died in Christ, there will come a day when you will be with them for all of eternity and you'll never have to say goodbye ever again. You'll never say goodbye again. So we need this Christmas. We need to be reminded that without Jesus, we would still be enemies of God. We need to recognize the fact that with this story, we see that no matter how evil the world around us may get, God is still in control and he longs for us to put our trust in him. And that's what I want you to do today. So as you go, and you begin to get ready for Christmas Day. If I don't see you again for another couple of weeks on a Sunday, let me encourage you. Go home today, this week, and do more than just celebrate. Get on your knees and thank God. Thank God for sending His Son. Thank God for the life that He brings. And thank God for reminding us that no matter how evil the world may get, this is not the end of the story. God is still in control. He is still on the throne. And He will reign forever. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you for the reality that Jesus, even as a baby, was the ruler. He was the king, and he is the king today, and he is reigning, and one day he will come back again, and he will set everything to right, and we will rule and reign with him, not to our glory, but all to his. And so, Father, remind us this week, the story of Christmas is a story of a cosmic battle. A battle that you have already won. And no matter how hard Satan may try to discourage us, 
dissuade us, to distract us. We have the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony to hold us. And may we be encouraged in that. And may we together thank you for giving us Christmas. For it's in Jesus' name, the one who is our King, our Master.